All right, uh, good evening. Welcome. Uh, my name is Stefan Herbert. I'm a lecturer in comparative politics at the government department at the LSE. Um, before I make the formal introduction, a few logistical remarks. Uh, we'll have a talk by John Seidel for about 30 to 40 minutes and then an extended Q&A afterwards. Um, I am held to make you aware of the event Twitter hashtag. Um, how's that thing called? Hash, right? Yeah. Hash LSE Seidel in one word. So LSE Seidel. Uh, and I encourage you to use that. Um, now, according to my list of procedures here, next step is to welcome John. Um, <laughs> so, uh, John is from the same department, government. He's the Sir Patrick Gillian, uh, Sir Patrick Gillen Professor of International Comparative Politics at the LSE. Uh, before taking up a post in 2004, he was uh, at 10 years at the School of Oriental and African Studies, where he taught many luminaries, including myself. Um, he uh, received his BA and MA from Yale and his PhD from Cornell. He uh, specialized in the study of Southeast Asia. He has three main areas of thematic expertise there. Um, that is local politics, uh, religion and politics, and nationalism and transnational forces, uh, all of which have some link directly or indirectly to uh, what we're going to hear about tonight. He's the author of several books, including The Islamist Threat in Southeast Asia, a reassessment, uh, appeared in 2007, uh, Riots, Pogroms, Jihad, Religious Violence in Indonesia, which in particular touches on aspects of the transition from uh, authoritarianism to uh, democracy in Indonesia. I think that is um, the work that we'll draw on tonight in particular when, when drawing parallels between uh, Egypt and Indonesia. Um, uh, of course, the Arab Spring is a very exciting time for uh, political scientists, but a lot of the analysis that has happened so far has been very currentist, driven mostly by area studies uh, rather than comparativist, uh, hasn't been very disciplinary in its direction. Although there's, there's a huge opportunity from a comparative perspective, because it had been always held out as the, the last bastion of authoritarianism in the world. People have been talking a lot about uh, the Arab except exceptionalism, and the fact that this has broken down now uh, has really both posed a, a large explanatory challenge to areas but study specialists, but also to studies of uh, authoritarianism and uh, transition to democracy in general. And I think a few people better positioned to uh, comment in particular on the disciplinary comparative perspective on the international dimensions of uh, the transition currently uh, happening in the region than, than John is. And uh, without further ado, I'll hand over to him. We have some, some media tonight, as you see, so from us, uh, John has promised to show some pictures uh, and uh, scans, and so we're all, uh, I'm looking very much forward to uh, what is gonna be a not only an interesting talk, but also a multimedia experience. So <laughs> Thank you. Uh, many thanks, Stefan, for this invitation, and thanks to the LSE Middle East Center as well for hosting this. Um, as you all no doubt know, uh, this evening is the first anniversary uh, of the onset of what's uh, at this point known as the revolution uh, in Egypt. Uh, and uh, in this sense, we can uh, mark it with you know, a, a sense of celebration insofar as uh, the events that began a year ago and culminated in the resignation of longtime President Mubarak uh, on February 11th 
uh, of last year, uh, in many ways were uh, heartwarming scenes of what people describe as people power, in which, which attested to the capacity of ordinary people uh, in a variety of contexts uh, here in, in Cairo um, and elsewhere in Egypt to exert something like you know, real people power. Uh, and it was something which many people, including myself, watched on TV and drew some sense of uh, pleasure to see as it uh, unfolded. Uh, and perhaps uh, if there are opportunities to study this, there's also the opportunism and, and the kind of hedonistic pleasure of enjoying this kind of spectacle. As spectacle sport goes, it's, it's relatively harmless and perhaps by watching one is in some small way contributing to that sense of protection uh, and and uh, spectator sport that people are engaged in on the streets. Uh, but as a so-called political scientist who has long uh, been studying politics in Southeast Asia, um, alongside this sense of uh, uh, pleasure and uh, sense of admiration for the people in Cairo and elsewhere in Egypt who engaged in this struggle so successfully, so courageously, there's also a sense of deja vu. Um, having seen this before, um, if you go back to Thailand um, in 1973, the overthrow of the Tanong Prapat regime, something rather similar. If you go back to the Philippines in 1986, uh, the, the overthrow of the Marcos dictatorship, and if you go back to Indonesia, as I will repeatedly today, um, in 1998, uh, and in the case of the Philippines and Indonesia, I was there in the, in the lead-up to these, uh, these moments in both cases, uh, observed these uh, overthrows, um, it's all familiar uh, in, in a way that suggests uh, the broader commonality of humanity, um, the aspirations of people for democracy, uh, and their capacity for courageous mobilization against dictatorship in a variety of circumstances, in a kind of universalistic story. On the other hand, if you've, if you've observed these sorts of events and also their aftermaths, um, there might be a somewhat less heartwarming story as well, and one which reminds one of the advantages, perhaps the necessity, of some kind of more comparative analysis, and also a somewhat more structural analysis of how the, the moments, uh, the liminal moments of popular mobilization, in which everyone's in the streets enjoying the moment uh, and demonstrating the capacity for ordinary people to make history, uh, the moments pass and the deep structures of politics and power, of economics, uh, of uh, social structures set in, in ways which over time uh, become evident and with the benefit of hindsight in the cases of Thailand or the Philippines or Indonesia or no doubt thinking of Eastern Europe, parts of Latin America, a variety of different contexts, one can begin to see familiar patterns across these different cases in the aftermath of these people power moments. And uh, those patterns are not all heartwarming, uh, I'm sorry to say. And thus, the, the point of comparison, uh, as well as the parallels, uh, might suggest some measure of predictions, something which people uh, typically shy away from, but which I will uh, not shy away from today. So how and why would we then take the, the case of Indonesia in particular and the moment of 1998 through 1999 as analogous, as parallel to uh, the past year in Egypt. 
Well, it seems to me that although this would seem in a variety of ways to be an implausible comparison and uh, an unhelpful comparison, and you might all just throw back at me that, well, Indonesia is not Egypt, Egypt's not Indonesia, you fool. Um, there might well be some reason to think that there are some common backgrounds to so these two cases in particular, which might uh, allow us to use Indonesia as a potential point of not just comparison and parallel, but a basis for some kind of, uh, if not predictions, then warnings as to possible dangers uh, along the road of what people describe as democratization. After all, if we think about it, um, the two countries uh, of Indonesia and Egypt are the key regional states of their respective regions, very populous and uh, influential within their regions. Indonesia, a population approximating uh, 240 million, uh, Egypt, well over 80 million. Uh, these are countries with a long, with majority Muslim populations and a history uh, and tradition, a rich history and tradition of Islamic learning and associational activity, which has made them well known in different ways across the Muslim world. But they're also countries um, which, aside from this rich and impressive history of associational and educational activity uh, within Islam, are countries with sizable and important, but in some ways problematic, uh, religious and ethnic minorities who have been, uh, relative to their uh, numbers disproportionately represented in the business world, in the ranks of the professional classes, and arguably in the making of national cultures, um, which are in various ways uh, secular and which draw on a broader conception of national identity uh, than those more narrowly associated uh, or more, more uh, exclusively focused on Islam. And indeed, if you look at both countries, after a long experience of different forms of European colonial intervention, uh, imperialism, and colonial rule, uh, experienced in the aftermath of World War II and the early decades of the Cold War in 19, the 1950s and 1960s, a phase in which their leaders assumed prominence as among the great third-worldist, nationalist, populist, avowedly socialist leaders uh, who uh, began to, in different ways, as you can see in these photos, um, resist the, uh, the hegemony of the United States in their respective regions and to try and chart a path that was more independent, a path that was um, uh, in economic and political terms something of a counter-hegemonic challenge against the United States, against the West, and also against uh, the world capitalist economy. In both countries, however, by the late 1960s and early 1970s, you saw a shift, a shift in political terms, uh, a shift against the left, very brutally in the case of Indonesia, with anti-communist pogroms in the mid-1960s that took 500,000 to a million lives, uh, in other ways in Egypt, but a shift to the embrace of the United States, um, a shift in economic terms, of uh, opening of the economy to foreign investment and capital, uh, and uh, beginning of a reduction of the role of the state in the economy and of the claims or pretensions of uh, the development planners in terms of some kind of commitment to something like socialism. And these shifts unfolded under military rule in both cases, uh, with the military as an institution uh, entrenched uh, in political life, but 
a series of presidents, in the Indonesian case, uh, Suharto, uh, and eventually, as we know, uh, Mubarak, after the assassination of Sadat in 1981, uh, with 30 years of these two respective uh, dictators as presidents in power. So far, so similar. Right? In both countries, moreover, the, the long arc of their rule for 30 years uh, under harsh authoritarian rule uh, retained strong support from the United States. You can see Suharto enjoying a lavish state visit with Bill Clinton, uh, and of course Mubarak quite recently with Obama. Uh, in both cases, the shift uh, to a more open uh, economy, uh, the embrace of foreign investment and loans and foreign uh, economic, not just assistance, but advice and uh, policy orientation saw, to varying extents, uh, industrialization, economic growth, uh, with uh, rising growth uh, in the years approaching the fall of these regimes, uh, and then in different ways of precipitous dip in the context of uh, broader global or regional economic crises. Over the 30 years of rule and this process of economic opening, uh, you saw, uh, on the one hand, uh, the rise of tremendously wealthy business classes, uh, but also, even with economic growth, uh, massive, uh, in some cases, in some areas, growing poverty and a widening gap between uh, rich and poor uh, in this context of economic growth, but also urbanization, industrialization uh, over the years. In both cases, uh, that process of economic growth unfolded under the auspices of a regime that was not only politically centralized and authoritarian, but a regime that was notable for cronyism and nepotism in uh, the business world and as deregulation, liberalization, and privatization unfolded, the most prominent beneficiaries uh, of these processes as local partners to foreign investors, uh, as major magnates, uh, as politically connected businessmen were, of course, members of the family, uh, the children of these longtime presidents. And this became increasingly visible in various ways, increasingly awkward and embarrassing, as we shall see. In both cases, moreover, there were anticipations uh, in the air that these presidential children uh, were also in line to succeed their aging fathers, with their fathers you know, entering into their uh, ninth decade, in the, well, into their 80s, right, in, by the, the time of their, uh, their last decade in power. And you can see here Suharto with his favorite daughter, uh, Tutut, as she was known, and uh, the son of Mubarak, Gamal um, Mubarak, who here is described by Newsweek as the future of Egypt. Uh, no such luck, at least at the moment. Over the last years of uh, Suharto and uh, Mubarak's rule, you saw rising evidence of uh, labor mobilization with the growth of urban and suburban <coughs> industrial belts, um, with the expansion of urban working classes, uh, you see rising strike activity and labor activism uh, in the last years uh, of their their rule. You see uh, a diverse range of different kinds of urban, in some measure, in large measure, middle class, but uh, cross class uh, oppositional activity in both in both cases, um, secular and spanning uh, 
different uh, religious orientations and, and different kinds of experiments with oppositional mobilization, even under the context of centralized authoritarian rule. In both cases, at the same time, over preceding decades and up through the last years uh, of these two dictatorships, you also saw the rising prominence of various forms of Islamic uh, educational and associational activity with the growth of urban middle class uh, uh, middle classes in both societies, uh, increasingly showing signs of, uh, of Islamic notions of bourgeois propriety, um, with Islamic organizations, student organizations, educational organizations and associations uh, increasingly prominent uh, in various spheres of social life, um, but also playing a rather ambiguous role politically, uh, not going into open opposition against the regime, uh, but manifesting themselves in a variety of ways which demonstrated the social significance, the social power, the social status and prestige associated with uh, Islamic piety, uh, but also the political power, um, which might even be asserted in a variety of ways um, under continuing centralized authoritarian rule, but which might in other ways be cooperating. So there are a diverse range of forms of uh, Islamic activism, uh, social activism, uh, educational activity, which thrive and grow and increase in prominence uh, in both countries, uh, which don't go into opposition in, in uh, a consistent, clear, uh, enduring fashion uh, as these regimes enter their, their final years, but which are there uh, clearly, as is anticipated by many observers, uh, waiting in the wings and, and clearly going to play some sort of role um, or a diversity of roles uh, in the process of transition. In both cases, the last year of the dictatorship also saw a particularly crude, sort of ham-handed um, form of uh, victory in the heavily staged electoral contests which these authoritarian regimes insisted on holding, um, even under clearly authoritarian auspices with, in the Indonesian case, uh, the 1997 elections, seeing not only uh, a very strong victory uh, for the regime's political machine, Golkar, but uh, very much at the expense of an, a previously um, rather popular opposition party that was allowed to run under the, the leadership of the former uh, President Sukarno's uh, daughter, Megawati Sukarno Putri, who you'll see shortly, with the daughter of Suharto uh, here, uh, Tutut, you can see her on the left there, uh, said to be in line to head uh, the, this party in the aftermath of its victory in which she played a prominent role. And likewise, the National Democratic Party uh, sweeping the 2010 parliamentary elections in Egypt uh, with, uh, if I remember correctly, 209 out of 211 seats um, claimed by this party in a victory seen by many as even more fraudulent and embarrassingly fraudulent than preceding ones, such as, say, the 2005 elections in which uh, as many as 88 uh, candidates associated with the Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, had been allowed to win office. And here again, this political party 
the electoral machine of the authoritarian regime uh, is one within which the, the, the favored son or daughter uh, of the uh, president who is seen to be in line to succeed the longtime president uh, is ascending to a position of leadership. Uh, and this kind of victory is closely associated with that kind of political project of uh, masterminding or stage managing uh, an effective transition from father to daughter or father to son, something that was underway in Indonesia in 1997-1998 and which many thought was well underway uh, in 2010-2011 until something else happened. In both cases, against this backdrop of impending succession, impending succession from father <coughs> to daughter, father to son, that was being engineered in various ways in the face of resistance and resentment from within the regime from various quarters. In, in both contexts, if you went back a few slides and saw those, uh, you know, the economic statistics, uh, the, the graphs, you could see there's a precipitous dip that coincides rather unfortunately with this moment for Suharto, and you can see declining growth, of course, in recent years uh, in Egypt, as uh, dear Gamal here is, is hoping for the best. Um, so against this backdrop, and in the context of a, of a variety of other circumstances, uh, you see in both cases uh, the onset and spread of uh, protests. Um, in, the, in the aftermath of these particularly fraudulent, um, grotesquely fraudulent, bogus election exercises, in the window of opportunity, which is not only opening um, for a variety of reasons, because of economic difficulty, resentment about the recent elections, but it's also closing, because people assume that if they don't make a move now, the rotten son or daughter of the dictator will soon be settling into the seats of power. And as the, uh, the mobilization begins to unfold in the streets, those people in the, uh, entrenched in the institutions of uh, the military establishment, which are so crucial for these regimes, they equivocate with the, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces in Indonesia, uh, General Wiranto, who had long served as the aide-de-camp the adjutant of Suharto, and there's a famous photo of him sort of leaning forward like this while Suharto wrote something on his back. Um, and and, uh, and uh, here, uh, Omar Suleiman, the head of military intelligence. These people, increasingly prominent, and in fact, uh, playing a role in as, as trying to serve as honest brokers for a period, um, signaling already that the, the military uh, is, is not going to stand up um, unequivocally to defend the regime when the regime is increasingly identified, not only in the present and the past with the longtime president who comes from the armed forces, but with the future of the son or the daughter who doesn't, even though Suharto's daughter, uh, Tutut here, was, shall we say, very, very friendly with the outgoing army chief indeed. Um, uh, although somehow you can't find any good photos of him. For some reason. <laughs> Handsome devil though he was. In any event, in, in this context and in the face of uh, persistent, courageous mobilization, people in the streets, people power, and uh, the 
inability or unwillingness of the armed forces and the other security organs of the state to stand up in the face of this kind of uh, resistance uh, and mobilization to defend the old man and his family, you see the resignation on the advice of the uh, military commanders of the time, the advice to step down. And interestingly, in both cases, neither of these presidents go into exile. Um, Suharto spends the rest of his days reportedly uh, watching the Discovery Channel uh, in his home in Jakarta, the same street where he had lived for many years rather than living in the presidential palace. Mubarak uh, goes to Arsham al-Sheikh and, and now is uh, uh, in ill health, we hear, um, facing legal difficulties as well as medical difficulties. And we shall see what, how things end up for him. In both cases, they remain. But in both cases, uh, the crowds, the people are jubilant uh, with the resignation of these figures and the ousted dictator um, is, and his family is disgraced. Some members actually end up, however, briefly in jail. We'll see again if uh, uh, what happens uh, in this regard. Um, and what follows in the wake of the fall of the dictator is an uneasy interregnum in which you see uh, prominent effective power of the military that had long served as a crucial pillar uh, for uh, presidential authoritarian rule. In this case, the vice president in Indonesia, uh, Habibi to the left, uh, assumes the role of president, but the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, General Wiranto, is well understood to be exerting considerable power and uh, to be uh, exerting power without any effective real a capacity for intervention on the part of Habibi in matters of internal security. Um, uh, Wiranto is seen to be in many ways masterminding uh, various elements of uh, government policy and Habibi to be heavily dependent on Wiranto for his continuation in power. So there is civilian military uh, condominium of a kind, but the military assumes a direct prominence and power uh, in these, in these interregnum regimes um, in ways that had been uh, cloaked under uh, the rubric of a civilianized ex-military authoritarian president for three decades. Um, so a new, awkward, uneasy, uncomfortable, ambiguous position for the military as an institution uh, over successive months. This uneasy interregnum in both cases sees continuing protests. The dictator falls, but in both cases, in Indonesia, from May 1998, after Suharto falls, well through November of 1998 and beyond, you see continuing street politics with large-scale student protests and, and other forms of protest against the regime, and outside of the major streets uh, of the national capital, a variety of new forms of popular mobilization are enabled, emboldened, impelled by the ongoing uncertainty, anxieties, possibilities, sense of excitement and elan of the moment. And we can still see some of that uh, in uh, Cairo and elsewhere. Not all of this is uh, warm and fuzzy, and, and not all of it is um, good, clean fun against uh, a 
sort of continuing form of authoritarian rule. There are various forms of violent, disruptive protest. There also is increasing evidence of difficulty in maintaining uh, order in the sense of criminality. Uh, the newspaper stories from Cairo and elsewhere that I've read, however superficially, suggest increasing concerns about law and order and criminality. Uh, in Indonesia during this period, uh, you have all sorts of forms of local gang warfare, rampant criminality. It's during 1998 and 1999 that, for example, you see uh, what used to be called in South Africa necklacing, you know, sort of mob lynches, lynchings of thieves in neighborhoods in different parts of Indonesia. You see uh, a curious anti-witchcraft campaign in which people are lynched um, for being uh, said to be witches. Um, during a period of real uneasiness and awkwardness in which locally the terms of local forms of control, of identity, the boundaries of authority, um, people's sense of, of, of local order and how society is organized is all up in the air, is all up in question. And so alongside the sense of possibility for a revolution to unfold, for democracy to extend itself, is also uh, the use of violence as people test the limits of the possible or try and uh, hold on to their power or extend their power in hierarchies of economic uh, and political uh, and criminal power. Local gangs test the limits of their turf. And this extends into the realm of interreligious violence, which uh, I know in the Indonesian case, and I would guess in the uh, Egyptian case, is not entirely divorced from these same sorts of, of issues. And you begin to see over the course of late 1998 into 1999, during this interregnum period in Indonesia, the onset of violence between uh, Christian and Muslim communities in places like Ambon in the Moluccas, the Spice Islands, and in a number of other localities um, across the Indonesian archipelago. Small in number relative to the, the larger population and the larger population uh, of non-Muslims. Um, you have some ethnic forms of, of uh, communal violence as well during this uneasy interregnum. And we've seen uh, examples of this uh, to date uh, in Cairo and I think elsewhere in Egypt uh, over the past many months with regard to the Coptic Christian minority in particular. Alongside these sorts of already existing uh, problems and worries and sort of morbid symptoms uh, of this uneasy interregnum, there are also sort of dark clouds on the horizon uh, in the eyes of many observers and commentators. And you begin to see pieces, uh, op-ed pieces uh, in Western papers as well as uh, in uh, national and local papers from commentators warning of the new forms of dangerous mobilization and the possibility of expanding power and violence in the name of religion and in the name of Islam in particular in these majority Muslim uh, countries with a group known as Laskar Jihad formed uh, with military assistance as it happens uh, and uh, with the assistance of many different groups um, to help uh, their co-religionists fight against Christians uh, in those parts of Indonesia, which in 1998, 99, uh, 2000, into 2001, are suffering from communal interreligious violence. 
and we see rising fears uh, of mobilization and political activity that may be aggressive, assertive, and spill over into coercive forms of activity in the case of Islam in Egypt today. In both cases, this uneasy interregnum draws to a close. And we saw it, we've seen it begin to draw to a close in uh, Egypt two days ago. It's over. Parliamentary elections are held preceding presidential elections in both cases before the turnover to a new president. So it's not entirely over, but it's getting there. And you see, with these parliamentary elections, the beginning of a shift to what some would describe as the parliamentarization of politics, in which street politics will soon start to matter a lot less. In which when you see people gathering in Tahrir Square, you think that's a bunch of people gathering in Tahrir Square. That's not the people gathering in Tahrir Square. The same process unfolds in Indonesia. The same process happens everywhere. Student politics doesn't matter anymore. Street politics doesn't matter anymore. If real power and those who can claim over the long term to speak in the name of the Egyptian or the Indonesian people are sitting in seats <coughs> rather than standing or doing other things uh, in crowds in squares. And that's already beginning to unfold uh, in uh, Egypt much as it did 14 years ago in Indonesia. It's inevitable it happens everywhere and I, I will happily uh, stand up and defend that proposition um, <laughs> in due course. But the bigger question is that if we look at Indonesia today, you know, some 14 years after the fall of Suharto, you have to wonder what this tells us about Egypt 14 years from now and whether there's any potential relevance in the Indonesian experience given all of the parallels, all of the shared background, all of the shared processes leading to the shared form uh, and, in the short term, outcome of the fall of these 30-year military dictatorships under long-time aging presidents and then their children on the horizon in these two countries. So what would the Indonesian experience tell us about what to expect over the next 14 years in Egypt? Well, as I've already suggested, one thing to anticipate is the parliamentarization of politics in which our analysis of what's going on is not confined to names of small numbers of people and speculation as to what they might be doing and thinking or crowds in the street. It's confined instead to numbers and to people who end up sitting in seats and making laws or otherwise pushing paper and voting on things. And that's what we see in both cases. And among the dangers that parliamentarization of politics is said to uh, throw out that might be worrying some commentators today, if you read the newspapers and uh, other sources of information and opinion, is concern about how this parliamentarization parliamentarization of politics doesn't just produce the liberal democracy which so many uh, observers uh, were said to be hoping for uh, in Egypt and so many naysayers so many negative commentators have been warning about other problems instead and here in particular we see in both cases that with the transition from authoritarian rule 
to competitive elections, that in fact, the first set of elections see considerable prominence, if not a hegemonic position, for those parties whose mode of mobilization, whose basis for bringing voters to the ballot box uh, is rooted in the associational and educational institutional structures of Islam. So in the Indonesian case, it's worth recalling that the Islamic parties in the 1999 elections won nearly 40% of the votes and more or less the same uh, seats in Parliament. And moreover, if you recall that the head of one of the two supposedly secular ecumenical parties was actually a man who rose to prominence and power as being the head uh, years earlier of the most influential Islamic student association and had led the, as they say in Indonesia, the greening of this ecumenical uh, party, Akbar Tanjung, that he became the Speaker of Parliament. That the head of the single largest modernist Islamic association, Amin Rais, became the head of the MPR, the, uh, the super-parliamentary body that then convened to elect the president, and that the president, not directly elected at this time in Indonesia, was a few months after the uh, June 1999 elections, uh, elevated uh, to the presidency, was the leader of the single largest so-called traditionalist Islamic association, uh, Nahdlatul Ulama, a man by the name of Abdurrahman Wahid, uh, known better as Gus Dur. So in other words, you could take at least 40% of Parliament see the real prominence in the key positions of leadership in the legislative and presidential branches of government uh, not much more than a year after the fall of Suharto and see that due to this set of circumstances and also even beyond that 40 percent another uh, another 20 what was it 21 percent 22 percent of the vote um, gives a predominant position for people whose uh, associational uh, linkages, whose mode of bringing voters to the ballot box, way of organizing nationally, is bound up in institutions of Islamic learning and associational activity. And this is at least paralleled, if not uh, more impressively manifested already in the Egyptian case. Right, with the Freedom and Justice Party associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, its alliance winning 40% of the vote in seats in Parliament, and the Anwar Party's alliance associated with the Salafi strains uh, of Egyptian Islam winning something like 25% of the vote in seats in Parliament. And we've just learned that the new Speaker of the Parliament is a key uh, former member of the Guidance Bureau of the Muslim Brotherhood as well. So far, so similar. So in terms of these sorts of fears, these sorts of concerns, and other kinds of concerns, fears, and worries about what might unfold uh, in Egypt, what actually has happened in Indonesia after this parliamentarization and its immediate aftermath uh, became, uh, you know, became evident. Well, the early interregnum unfolded, unlike in Egypt, under the presidency of the 
former vice president who assumed office in the fall of Suharto, a man by the name of B.J. Habibi, who had received a PhD, I believe, in aeronautical engineering in Germany, and who had served for many years as the Minister of Research and Technology under Suharto, but since the early 1990s had headed something called the All-Indonesian Association of Islamic Intellectuals, known by its Indonesian language acronym as ICHMI. And thus, between 1998 and 1999, the government was in the hands of someone who was, as president, also closely associated with a project connected to some kind of promotion of Islam in Indonesian society. And the elections that turfed him out of office, as we've already seen, saw the rise to prominence of other forms of Islamic uh, political activism and associational educational activity. And yet, over successive years, from Habibi to Abdurrahman Wahid, who lasted until 2001, and then was succeeded in 2001 by his vice president, Megawati Sukarno Putri, and on from 2004 to the present, to Susilo Bambang Urayono, a retired lieutenant general in the army, you see a process of, some might say, secular decline, of marked decline in terms of the prospects for politics, transformative politics, the name of Islam in uh, Indonesia. By 2001, the various Islamic parties in, uh, uh, in the parliament had given up on any kind of ambitions to change the constitution, uh, to favor the promotion of Islamic law. Um, and uh, by 2004, 2009, the limits of their uh, capacity to win elections had become clear. None of the Islamic parties uh, today win more than 10% of the vote. The one party that is associated with something approximating Salafi Islam, um, if you want to uh, use that kind of term, uh, wins a maximum of 8% of the vote. The parties abandoned constitutional change, and although a few years earlier these parties had combined to prevent the single largest party's representative from assuming the presidency, Megawati Sukarno Putri, because she was a woman, but also because her party represented Christians, non-Muslims, and had very little to do with uh, Islam, uh, instead promoting uh, Abdurrahman Wahid. By 2001, the heads of these different Islamic parties are desperate to be part of her cabinet, desperate to support her, desperate to stab her predecessor in the back, and compete among themselves desperately to be part of her cabinet and part of her coalition, much as they subsequently do under the leadership of longtime president now, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono. In other words, the arc of sort of Islamic politics is one of early prominence and success, but decline, uh, in which you see over the course of uh, these past 14 years, fragmentation, divisiveness, a process of co-optation, and the increasing tendency for these uh, Islamic parties to draw into their ranks businessmen, to make coalitions with machine uh, politicians from the non-Islamic parties, and to engage in forms of voter mobilization, appealing to voters, and uh, building up war chests for their campaigns that have, shall we say, distracted them in a variety of ways from whatever kind of Islamic goals people had hoped or feared that might be their raison d'etre. 
over the same period of time, moreover, what has happened in terms of the problem of the religious and ethnic minorities in Indonesia who had appeared so vulnerable and about whom so many people had seemed concerned at the turn of the 20th century with anti-Chinese riots growing in, in number and frequency before the fall of Suharto, analogous to even pre-Takir uh, uh, Square uh, violence uh, targeting cops in Egypt. What happened to anti-Chinese rioting after 1998? And what happened to the early forms of interreligious violence that accompanied that uneasy interregnum uh, between 1998 and 1999, and which persisted up into 2001. Well, happily enough, after 2001, no more uh, inter-religious pogroms. Happily enough, already after 1998, no more anti-Chinese violence. And I think it's fair to say today that Indonesian Chinese citizens have never, in formal or informal terms, had it so good as they have today in Indonesia, um, and that the, the sort of problems and threats to Christians in Indonesia um, are not such as to merit the kind of alarm that some evangelical Christian websites and other, others uh, uh, might suggest. That more or less, Indonesia is safe for Christians and Chinese far more than in the 1990s, far more than it was before the fall of Suharto. So the transition to democracy has led neither to the Islamicization of politics in some uh, growing, increasing way, nor to the marginalization, persecution, or hardship for these religious and ethnic minorities whose problematic position as seemingly privileged minorities uh, was seen to be potentially jeopardized by the fall of authoritarian rule and the onset of majority rule under democracy. There have been, as it were, some sore losers in this process. Uh, people who have resorted to violence. The man here, uh, photographed, depicted here, is the uh, supposed leader of a shadowy network blamed for the Bali bombings of 2002 and subsequent bombings. There are those who are said to have sought violent retribution for these humiliations uh, to uh, Islam over the past decade, the decline and disappointment that they have suffered. But overall, that has not been uh, the, the overarching trend. On the one hand, you can see that in Indonesia today, there remain ways in which Islam and those who claim to represent it in politics have tried to use political power and influence to police the boundaries of the faith, to, in various ways, uh, impose their notion of, of public morality on their uh, co-religionists and on Indonesians as a whole, but also to police the boundaries of the faith by, by uh, in various ways, persecuting those who they see as deviants among their uh, supposed co-religionists. And here you see some of the, the attacks, legal and violent, uh, on the small Ahmadi sect uh, in Indonesia, which we've read and heard about uh, in recent years um, uh, and which doesn't seem to be going away. But overall, if you were to look at Indonesian public life today, I think it's fair to say that despite uh, new laws that are said to restrict pornography, uh, despite other ways in which these sorts of groups have at least pushed a kind of social agenda, 
that is seen to be conservative in terms of issues of gender and family and sexuality and, and the like, that if, for example, you ask Dede Utomo, who's been here speaking at the LSE at our invitation, and who I saw speak recently in Copenhagen, Indonesia's most famous uh, activist, not just in terms of fighting AIDS, but in terms of gay rights and rights for all sorts of uh, people of broader sexual orientation and activity, that according to him, transsexuals in Indonesia, gay and lesbian Indonesians, have not ever had it as good as they have it today. That despite the kind of persecution, despite the protests and restrictions that various Islamic groups are still promoting and which government concessions, concessions might, might actually afford, that in reality the overall trend in social life, in cultural life, in sexual life has been towards liberalization rather than the opposite. In terms of vulnerable minorities, Dede Utomo, who famously said, well, I'm Chinese, I'm gay, I'll join the People's Democratic Party, people call, call me a communist as well, you know, he's living happily today and says more or less that others in a similar situation are living more happily and easily in terms of their social context than they were 14 or 20 or 24 years ago under an avowedly ecumenical or secular authoritarian regime. But beyond these kinds of dangers associated with the fears of a kind of Islamist threat that might uh, put vulnerable minorities in jeopardy and that might otherwise transform uh, social or political life in Egypt, um, and that haven't succeeded in doing so in Indonesia, it seems to me there are other kinds of dangers not associated with too much democracy, but with the limitations of democracy. And here the most obvious thing to note is that in the aftermath of the fall of Suharto, that we've seen the preservation of the prerogatives of the military establishment. There's been only limited reduction of the military's role in the economy. There's been uh, only limited uh, uh, sort of restrictions on the military's role in a variety of other realms of uh, informal, illegal economic activity. The police now have a bigger piece of the action. Um, and in terms of politics, we've seen the continuing prominence of military men in office, so that the current president is, a, as I've already mentioned, uh, a retired uh, lieutenant general in the army, uh, whose father-in-law was famous for his role in the anti-communist pogroms of the mid-1960s, and we read about the role of a range of other retired military officers in politics, locally and nationally, in Indonesia, and it's a common and important element of the scene. Alongside uh, this pattern of continuing military prerogatives in Indonesia, which I would likewise uh, anticipate uh, in the Egyptian case, including uh, a president along these lines in due course after a series of supposedly sort of wishy-washy uh, mercurial uh, civilian rulers. You need a, a firm hand, a professional soldier, an honest broker, a reformist, stern hand, strong hand on the tiller, that sort of thing. A white knight in shining armor, blah, blah, blah. Um, at the same time, what we've seen is that the form of democracy which you find in a country like Indonesia is unsurprisingly given the demographics, like so many other democracies, an oligarchical democracy, in which we see the predominance of businessmen in electoral politics. Here you see pictured next to the president, 
uh, a famous or infamous businessman uh, uh, named uh, Bakri, who is the now the head of Golkar, the, the second largest party in office. He's got a cabinet post. He's planning to run for president in 2014. He's just cheated the Rothschilds out of a huge amount of money that everyone except the Rothschilds knew he would. Um, he's uh, he's uh, running for president, and uh, at this point, you know, he looks like a strong contender, and there are many, many Bakris um, filling the ranks of the legislature. The parliament is filled with people who go into politics to protect their or promote their business interests, or people who go into politics and develop business interests in ways that would be familiar to you from a variety of other countries like Nigeria or the Philippines or uh, perhaps some closer to home. Meanwhile, Tommy Suharto, smiling as he uh, exits prison, um, he's back. His sister is around. You know, these sorts of people uh, are back in, in terms of their money. Their business empires may have been liquidated, but their cash flow is still such that they uh, are, are still around in terms of giving you a taste for how politics works today. And that's just a, a very superficial one. And meanwhile, of course, even as Indonesia is today celebrated as among the so-called extended bricks, as among the, the, the major success stories of the emerging markets, um, the widening gap in terms of the rich and the poor uh, is growing. And the continuing problems of poverty, the continuing stories about corruption uh, and predation persist. Um, if you read Amnesty International's account of what ordinary people suffer at the hands of the police, if you read about agriculture, mining, and pollution, and all sorts of problems, this is an oligarchical democracy in which the limitations of democracy, as opposed to the excessive possibilities for its, uh, uh, its uh, dangerous uh, sort of excesses, are all too evident. And if we think about Egypt, might this simply replicate the Indonesian story? And here, I think I've suggested so far that it will. Right? That everything that is so similar between these two countries in these very broad uh, ways that I've suggested will lend itself to a repeat performance over the next 14 years, I'm sorry to say, um, for worse in large measure as opposed to for better. In terms of the differences, however, I think at least three things have to be noted, which uh, to my mind raise a number of questions that are worth asking for scholars and researchers as they begin to look back on the uh, Mubarak regime to understand it better, although there's an interesting uh, literature that I've been delving into on the, the, on the uh, Mubarak era. But as they begin to look at what's going on today during this continuing, perhaps soon ending interregnum before a new constitution, presidential elections uh, supposedly on the horizon, and a new phase of democratization in Egypt. And one thing here, the first thing to note, is that it would appear that in Egypt that there is, has been a greater autonomy of the military as an institution in a way that prefigured both direct military rule, um, but on the other hand, has not made clear the kinds of forms or mechanisms of civilianization of power that you can see so seemingly, for some at least, happily with someone like SBY, the current president, 
who was a paper-pushing military bureaucrat rather than a, a fighting soldier for so long, and who's very comfortable, as you can see, in a business suit, as he was earlier in his uh, uh, carrying a gun, uh, showing off with a gun, and, and wearing his uniform. It's not clear how that civilianization uh, will unfold. In the Suharto regime, it was Suharto was very smart in some ways, and when you reach the ripe age of 55, as some of us may hopefully do eventually, um, we, you found in the Indonesian military that you were out. If you were a lieutenant colonel, you became a regent. If you were a colonel, you might become a regent or a, 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 a mayor of a small city. If you were a brigadier general, perhaps a governor. Major general, lieutenant general, the possibilities were greater for state enterprises, for positions in cabinet, for a range of civilian possibilities. People didn't stay in their positions within the military into their 60s and 70s or 80s. And so I'm not so sure whether that same processes, the same set of processes which in the Indonesian case drew serving military men into networks of effectively civilianized patronage as they looked forward to a retirement at the age of 56 in positions of greater civilian power and prestige and money-making pecuniary advantage than they had while serving as serving ar army officers. Whether that's unfolding and whether that would uh, help to ease the process, it, it doesn't, it does, it's not clear to me that that is, is going to be as easy, if as sleazy, a process as it uh, has been in Indonesia. Secondly, and related to this, is the curious uh, phenomenon that you didn't see at all in Indonesia, which was the effective evisceration of the National Democratic Party under the increasingly assertive leadership of uh, Mubarak's son, Gamal. Right? Nothing like that un unfolded in Indonesia. And if you look at the three parties that were allowed to compete in the first elections, Golkar, the regime's machine, and then the two other parties, the PPP and the PDI, that they, they did the best. They were the strongest parties because they had networks throughout the country on the ground. Whereas the vaporization of the NDP in Egypt created a certain kind of space. And it jeopardized other kinds of modes of uh, mobilization that would have been in place if some form of electoral machine from the old regime had been allowed to reinvent itself. That kind of effective vaporization of the NDP which I can't help but wonder was allowed, if not encouraged, by the military uh, nearly a year ago, um, you know, is something that has, has been very important in the past elections. Who would have the, the, the kind of resources to mobilize voters across the country? Across the country, in, in a huge country in terms of mobilizing voters, the money, the resources, the network, in such a short period of time, only some and not others. And this leads us finally to the question um, of Islam. In the case of Indonesia, if we compare Indonesia to Egypt, you have a long and continuing history, even under, even under Suharto, of lively, autonomous, independent associational activity. On the one hand, most notably the traditionalist uh, educational association, Nakatu Ulama, whereas in Egypt, the counterpart, if we think of it, Al-Azhar, 
is co-opted under Nasser, subjected to state control, and does not have the same kind of dynamism, prestige, or capacity to manifest itself politically and socially in the kinds of activism that we see, by contrast, surviving and prospering and growing over successive years in Indonesia. On the other hand, in the case of Indonesia, in terms of the urban modernist Muslims that we see represented so well in the elections in, uh, in Egypt uh, in recent months, this stems from a form of associational activity that remained outside of the regime, not co-opted and drawn into it, in ways that unfolded over the, the last years of Suharto under figures like uh, Habibi, who became Minister of Research and Technology, headed this group, each may became Vice President and then President. So in that sense, a rather different configuration in terms of the relationship between state power by the time of the fall of the dictator and the key institutions of Islamic association education. And thus, in terms of the available alternatives to Islamic parties in the first elections, a rather different constellation uh, in which Egypt is beginning this long sort of a path over the next 14 years, uh, if not to an Indonesian future, then uh, to something else. Okay? Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, it was very, very interesting, similarly, for me, that I yesterday given a lecture at, at SOAS trying to explain why the Arab republics, for the most part, have failed or struggled, why the monarchies have, uh, with, with the exception of Bahrain, have made it through the Arab Spring more or less unscathed. And, and a lot of the things that you raised, a lot of the, the, the uh, characteristics of populist rule, uh, the decline thereof, the, the, the uh, kind of neoliberal capitalism also was introduced from the 1970s and were, were things that I, uh, that I also highlight across a range of, of mm -hmm. uh, Arab republics. We definitely have to have mm -hmm. a, a conversation on that. Um, I, I just have one question with which I'd like to abuse my chairman's privilege. Uh, and that is uh, one fact in which I would also see Egypt and Indonesia differing in the next decade or so mm -hmm. is that Egypt really seems to be uh, an economic basket case. Mm -hmm. uh, and Indonesia had a lot of potential. It was an exporting manuf uh, manufacturing power, and it could recover and find back to the route relatively quickly, whereas uh, Egypt is a, is a deficit country. It's overpopulated relative to its resources. And it still struggles with a larger legacy of the kind of populist authoritarian phase in terms of state employment, subsidized public services that I mean, Indonesia would also have had, but not on the same scale. Um, and uh, against the background of probable economic failure and possibly state bankruptcy as early as this March in, in Egypt, um, I would predict a, uh, a stronger presence of the Salafis, which in particular are rooted, are catering to the kind of constituencies that are, that are, that are suffering from uh, economic underdevelopment. And uh, that would be another projection uh, in which Egypt would be would differ from Indonesia, would differ in a way that most of us would not be happy about in terms of the strengthening of the Salafi as opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood kind of middle class oriented uh, Islamist forces. Um, 
In terms of the format of the Q&A, I think what we'll try to do is to take one question at a time, so to keep it dynamic. And if all of you could identify yourselves with your name and your affiliation, I'll, I'll keep a tab on, on uh, who's raised their hands. Uh, and then we'll keep the, the questions very brief and uh, also the, the answers as brief as possible, so we'll still get a good deal of discussion done in the, in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, I don't know whether you want to briefly comment on what, what I've said. Why don't we open it up? Okay, why, why don't we open the floor? Uh, we've had... Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, sure. Barbara Allen Robertson, um, Global Policy Institute. Um, following on from the previous comment, uh, was, uh, was there much of a role in Indonesia for, for U.S. involvement and influence? I ask that. Because when you're looking at Egypt, there, the military has had a continuing sum of money lodged on it every year from the U.S. Treasury uh, since 1979. And, uh, and that, over time, although there's, there's been uh, some attrition on that, but over time, the Egyptian military has become an economic, uh, rather, important economic uh, influence on the structure of the economy. And I'm wondering uh, if uh, you would see that as having an influence on the way in which the politics might emerge, the structural politics might emerge in the future. The Muslim brothers are highly disciplined, as we all, we all quite aware, and people who have researched on them specifically from here, sort of attest to that and also understand that the differences that have emerged amongst them and their relationship with the Salafian. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I'm just curious if you see this role of the United States uh, and it's uh, uh, actually being on both sides of this divide. I mean, IFAS, the um, an, an American NGO, which is U.S. government funded, was one of the key uh, groups uh, aiding or helping in the uh, electoral process and what happens in the polling stations, what you wear, all this stuff, and advising the judges on how to behave in polling stations. And that's U.S. government funded. So they're on both sides of the divide in this, um, from this point onwards and have uh, a stake in, and they, in a way you don't know you don't actually know which side they uh, uh, will well they're just going to carry on presumably so I'm curious if you find that the American role in Egypt in some way causes a difference in your analysis with regards to Arthur unless you can tell me that the US had some you know, big financial stake <laughs> in Indonesia. Okay. Maybe I can answer that in tandem with sure. If I begin to answer that, I will get to your question, I think, in due course by a roundabout way. Um, the Indonesian military was, from the early 1960s, um, closely linked to the Pentagon in the United States. After the United States supported um, and organized the single largest covert operations around the world. They led a massive regional rebellion against the Sukarno regime from 57 to 59. They turned around and from 1960 began to encourage 
people in the army to launch a coup against Suharto and the communists, uh, Sukarno and the, and the communists. And in 1965-66, the U.S. moved very quickly to help shore up Suharto, um, led a consortium of different uh, foreign, private, and government lenders to help him <coughs> financially to consolidate power and to encourage the opening of the country um, to uh, Western business. The single biggest investor at the time was a big American mining corporation, still the single biggest taxpayer to the Indonesian government source of revenue. Um, the big majors, the big oil companies, Americans have been in there um, uh, quite prominently. And the Indonesian military has been receiving American military assistance and training all these years and, uh, and, and arms assistance. Um, and just as there were people from the Pentagon on the phone to General Tantawi, uh, so it was with Wiranto uh, in 1998. Um, and thereafter, that close linkage, as one might expect. Um, at the same time, the United States also involved from the 1990s in funding and supporting and encouraging through the Asia Foundation and the Ford Foundation and the National Endowment for Democracy and the National Democratic Institute, the emergence of this democratization and civil society industry from which a lot of friends of mine in Jakarta made a lot of nice money uh, off these sucker Americans funding all, all sorts of stuff, as their counterparts will soon be doing in Cairo if they're not already. Um, so a lot of parallels there rather than differences. Um, I don't see much difference. And, and in terms of the question of the threat of Islam, a similar thing as opposed to, as of yet, the more complicated game really that, say, the Pakistani military has played with Islam vis-a-vis -vis the United States in a very different kind of setting. Um, so, so far, so similar. The question, though, is about, in, in terms of economic interests, and the Indonesian military, like uh, its Egyptian counterpart, has had an economic empire. My, it's, it's very clear in the Indonesian case that over the course of the 1990s, that economic empire was increasingly dwarfed by the private empires, not only of the big ethnic Chinese businessmen, but also the Suharto kids. And that people were being drawn into the orbit of these private businesses in which the old military foundations linked to different military commands and other military businesses were relatively small. And you could physically see the, the way in which the army headquarters were dwarfed by these great skyscrapers. My impression is that that is true in, in Egypt as well, despite the fact that there is still this vast, but probably inefficient, <coughs> somewhat funky old, you know, old second-class hotels or, you know, probably a third-rate business empire of a kind, which these guys are retiring into. It's still there, but it's not the, a dynamic source. And, and in the Indonesian case, that has, has ticked on quite nicely. I think that the, the question that I wonder about in terms of the military and political parties to head towards Stefan's question is, you know, in, in the case of Thailand in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, the military, different factions of the military would fund different political parties, right, in which the, you know, the political parties would, would, there was enough money coming from the military to the politicians that the, the flows of money could go that way. In the Indonesian case, you know, that hasn't happened, that hasn't been possible. There was a civilianization of the political party process even under Suharto, you know, so is the military going to play a role in, pol in electoral politics directly or indirectly? Are they going to play games with one or another part of the 
you know, one or another party or set of politicians, have they already been doing so? I don't know, but that's the question to ask. Will retired military men run for office as they have done prominently and successfully in Indonesia? That's something to ask. But I think the bigger question of the context of a poor country with such vast, you know, uh, distances between the vast majority and the, you know, the sort of towering Andes of these super wealthy magnates. I, I'm not sure that it inevitably follows. I think it inevitably follows that there will be one or another form of machine politics, patronage politics, that mobilization is going to have nothing to do with top or square in elections. It will have to do with, you know, bread and circuses, as they say. It'll be machine mobilization. And in the short term, at the moment, with the, the sort of temporary vaporization or you know, displacement of some of these entrenched characters, it appears that by default, the Salafis are there. They have their clinics. They have their, as they did in Indonesia, who are these guys showing up at bus stations helping pregnant women? Who are these, these guys? They're there on the streets. Uh-oh, what, what could they do? But they actually have limited resources compared to the, the huge needs of over 80 million people. And if, if they can't muster state power um, into effective populist or patronage programs that will hit the voters, then they'll lose. And the forms of machine politics that are essentially you know, secular in, in their dynamics will resurface. They might resurface. Maybe some Salafi guys will say, you want Islamic sewage? You want Islamic construction projects? You want Islamic this, that, the other thing? Call it that. But in the end of the day, people want proper sewage system. They want the electric connections. They want their squatter settlements protected or, you know, or, or titled or whatever they're going to get from these politicians. And that will be crucial. Not because they'll get what they want, but it'll be local bosses, local strongmen, machines. And whether the, the Islamists among the Salafis or the Muslim Brotherhood or somebody else is going to have any real advantage I'm not sure whether we know yet, because the first election is always a weird election in which people actually think that anything could happen. I mean, the military in Burma let Aung San Suu Kyi win 80% of the vote in 1990. What were they thinking? So this first election is not just some kind of referendum on who the Egyptians really are and, and who they will always be. It's also an oddball election. And over time, I think there's regression towards the mean in elections as opposed to something else, even if the short-term advantages of incumbency will be advantages for the next round in some measure as well. I, I'm just not sure that it necessarily follows mm -hmm. that Salafi have in the bag, because they won so spectacularly 25% of the seats this time, and they, you know, they've got clinics and orphanages and things like that going. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, thanks. Um, I wonder if you, can, if you can extend or build on something that you prefer. <laughs> oh, um, if you can extend or build on something that, that you kind of touched on, both in terms of in terms of comparisons, parallels, or perhaps dissonance between Egypt and, and Indonesia, which is um, something you talked about at the end of the, the lecture, which is the full the the, the remainders, right? Um, either kind of ex-members or sympathisers with the Assyrian regime. Um, and one of the more occluded moments, I think, of, of what's gone on, um, especially since, I would say, May kind of time, is a presence in street politics, which is a series of, if not mobilization, counter-mobilizations. If, if revolutionaries have 
Tahrir, then they have Abbasir, which is a which is a square very close to Tahrir on the sixth floor table bridge. And these guys are very present. And I know that I know that today that they they were in Abbasir, there were thousands of them. And especially um, you know, since the since uh, it kind of kicked off again in late November, you saw, I mean you saw large numbers, tens of thousands of people mobilizing. And I wonder what happens to these people, what happens to these guys? Do they get kind of subsumed within this logic of parliamentarization of politics? Do they, are these the guys that re-emerge when, re, when the logics of machine politics re-emerge, kind of the next election on, the election after that? Or, or is this something actually caused to be different and, 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 and will be a force unto itself in Egyptian politics in the future? Um. <coughs> I think that people who are engaged in street politics now and who, um, who are good at that or who, are, who achieve prominence now, if, if they're thinking about their future, um, they, should, they should start to jump now from street politics to parliamentary politics because it, it, it's a sunset industry. I think, I mean, November 1998, people were still doing it, but thereafter they weren't. I had a, when I taught at SOAS, I managed to help get this guy into a master's program who had been the poster boy, literally, for um, student activism and spent a few years in prison in the late Suharto period and, and emerged as a great hero of this kind of politics. And um, he did his master's degree and he, he was even admitted to a PhD and he went back and joined one of the big political parties and just became part of a big, one of the big machines. And he, you know, he will tell people, well, that it's the best way to push for what he believes in and so forth. And there are lots of people from that generation who, who have, have joined the coattails of these machines. Um, and that was their moment to do so. And then they were then, many of them uh, have, have failed to keep their place in prominence within these machines as the money bags have, have come in and outmaneuvered them as the people who are really good at machine politics. About maneuver them, and these people may be good at writing speeches and doing other things. Like you know, there are a lot of old Thai communists from the 1970s who are now surrounding Taksin and surrounding the the King's people in, in Thai politics. You know, and they you know they were communists in the 70s. They're good at organizing, writing speeches, political analysis, things like that. But they're not really unless they then went into business, as some of them did. You know, they're they're lower down the food chain in the machine politics, which will inevitably... And, and you'll see that process go on within the Muslim Brotherhood. You'll see that process transforming the internal relationships of organizations, which we've thought of as civil society, as the logic of electoral, of electoral politics takes over society, as the, the distribution of state goodies, of state power, and, and the consequences for social power become more apparent as that the porousness of those boundaries between state and society you know, begin to make themselves felt. So I, I think those guys in, what was it, Abbasir Square, they, they, should, they should start making their plans, getting their CV together, YouTube what they can do, can they mobilize people, are they good at mobilizing, and being good at mobilizing people in a square is different from mobilizing people, the hard slog of electoral campaign, which takes a lot of hard work. I had a question on, I think it is very instructive to me to make these kind of parallels because you can point both at, at say similarities and contrasts and I think yeah there is a qualitative difference say in, in Muslim politicians, it's maybe a better word than Islamic politicians, it's for sure mm -hmm. the case of Indonesia and the situation in Egypt where you see that 
I mean, they share probably the organizational flair, Mohammediyah and Muslim Brotherhood. But uh, I mean, the differences of the, the fortune of Islamic parties in Indonesia is, I think, a combination of constitutional and cultural factors. But the example almost works the other way as well, because I think you pointed at one part party which gained like 8%. I think that is the, the Justice and Prosperity yeah, Party, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah, well, it's the only one who sort of is stable. It's small, but stable. It's also the party that looks the most like the Muslim Brotherhood in Indonesia. They'd be flattered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would they be the ones that, that remain stable as opposed to the other ones? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think in the Indonesian case, and I'm not at all sure that this it has any parallels in the way in which the, the, the Salafi functional equivalents, if not necessarily genuine, you know, in theological or other, other terms equivalents might be, um, whether that, it's true there. But um, for the, the PKS, um, I think if there is a stability to that, uh, it, it, it's, it's been stable across two elections more or less, but it hasn't grown. Um, is it their anti-corruption agenda rather than, say, the doctrinal animal? I mean, I think that's a party that has changed internally. I mean, you know, famously a PKS legislator, you know, was caught watching <laughs> pornography on his, on his laptop in, in the midst of a parliamentary debate when they've been <laughs> promoters of the anti-pornography bill. It was a virus. It was a virus, right. And, and there's, there's been a history of, you know, of coalition building and, and drawing businessmen into their ranks and people from far outside. So I'm not sure if the stability in their, their success in parliamentary seats necessarily means continuity in the internal machination and makeup of the party. And I'm also not sure if the, the constituency is the same. When I observed the elections and in, in the campaign up to the elections uh, in 2004, you know, the kinds of people who were attending the rallies and to whom they appealed did not seem in terms of uh, dress and, 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 and other sort of superficially observable uh, features to represent an obvious constituency in terms of shared religious orientation. But that anti-corruption thing, I mean, is that a reliable segment of, of, of the vote if, in fact, you may become rather corrupt over the course of your time <laughs> in office? I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure about that stability. Um, and I think, you know, there are people happily enough writing about this all the time. We've got things to read on, on, on these sorts of questions. Um, because that original idea of these engineers and, and, and other kinds of, you know, uh, well-educated, uh, very pious young men and women leading this party, you know, that's evolved from the original ideals that they began with into the reality. So I, I'm not sure how much stability that there is. But they haven't grown. They were supposed to grow spectacularly. They, their projections and everyone else's projections, and they didn't grow. So they don't do well because the other was even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the alternative explanation. Um, yeah, I'm afraid that'll have to be the last question because we're uh, approaching 8 o'clock. Uh, my name is Bassam, I'm at Kings as well. Um, you, know, you know, just quickly going back to the idea of parliamentarization of you know, politics. Um, 
I guess, you know, part of my question would be, you know, this revolution, especially in Egypt, has seen a significant shift in the way power and people interact with one another. And, you know, Dr. Hertog, you know, mentioned the grievances, especially economic grievances, that are likely to exist in Egypt for the near to long-term future. And, you know, is it possible to say that street politics will remain a viable and potent, you know, form of politics so long as there are grievances that Parliament can't address? And so that, that would be one aspect of the question. But also, you know, studying the Egyptian model, devoid of the regional implications of the Arab Spring, you know, Egypt doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, they're inspired by what's going on in Tunisia, what's going on in Bahrain and Syria. They're, in a way, pushing one another forward. Mm -hmm. Is it more likely to move in a more democratic direction, less along the Indonesian <laughs> model because of this, you know, wider Arab Spring that's taking place across the Arab world? Mm. Good questions. Um, but I might have pessimistic answers. <laughs> um, in terms of continuing street politics, I hope so, in, in some measure, because there, there, there are real limits to what parliamentary politics, in the absence, in any country, in the absence of some kind of street politics, what parliamentary politics turns out to be. It's good to have that rumble of thunder.